This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket. I'm Matt Fonslow, and believe it or not, I am going to talk about something very left field, uh, maybe very difficult for me to try to relate to anything specifically in our automotive repair bubble, other than just, I guess it's a human story. And I'll level with you. I'm doing it mainly out of inspiration. I was inspired by listening to someone. I was in a conversation with three others and one of the participants kind of led on to some personal personal things. And uh, they have their own podcast. And I felt it would be very worthwhile for them to share um, because of it, because it's personal, because unfortunately it's would be a shared experience or shared feeling or feelings with many people. And so that's, I guess, why I'm going to share with you this story. I'm scared or tentative, I guess, sharing it because I'm worried it'll be very, um, woe is me or looking for sympathy, uh, you know, trying to fish for people to make comments or send messages, uh, support. And honestly, this happened a while ago. You know, I, I, that's not why I'm doing this at all. I got what I needed when I needed it. And now maybe to quote Chris Rock a little bit, you don't really get over it, but you learn to live with it. And I'm not, that's not like suffering with it. Uh, it is what it is. It happened. Uh, so I'll tell you the story as best I can. And I'll leave it up to you to take as much positive as you can from it. Because I feel like I I see a lot of positives in it. So that's what I'm going to share. But first of all, I'd like to thank my sponsor, Napa Auto Care. Since its launch in 2020, the Napa Auto Care member site has continued to evolve to keep members updated on all the Napa programs, promotions, benefits, and other information available to help their businesses thrive. If you are a Napa Auto Care member, visit member.napaautocare.com to access the member portal. Not a Napa Auto Care Center? Contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store to learn more about how to join the Napa family. So the story, I guess, is going to be, I'll have to start at the beginning, right? At the time, I'm married to my first wife, and we have three kids. I'm working for a shop as a shop manager and diagnostician, not unlike what I do now. A smaller shop, I guess, in the grand scheme, fewer people, smaller town. And I guess this will sound a little boastful. Uh, it's really, this, it's just what happened. But I had one Pico 4 channel in a Jeopardy style contest at Linder Technical Services. The, the way I won it and how it, it, it wasn't first place. You get the Pico. Uh, there was four prizes. First place got first choice between some products. Uh, and then second place got second choice, of course. And I end up winning. The whole time, my thought process is I, I just need to come in second. I think if I come in second, I'm going to get the Pico because I'm pretty sure whoever wins will go after some this other product. 
I think that was viewed as more valuable. I was playing for second place. I end up winning. I grabbed the Pico 4 channel, uh, much to the surprise of many in attendance. And, you know, word gets back to not so much Pico themselves. I mean, maybe, but specifically a distributor of PicoScope in the United States. And his name is Craig Schoenberger, and he owned really the largest distributor of PicoScope in North America. And for sure the United States, but I'm almost positive it was North America. You know, they reached out to me and congratulated me and stuff, and we visited about it. And this is about the time the firmware, the software, if you will, uh, Pico 5 was being slowly phased out or less um, updates to it. And Pico 6 was kind of coming out and being created. It was a beta phase and I had a copy of the beta software and about a year, what's really a year later, a year later at the same uh, conference, same conference title at Lindertech, he was there with a booth. He asked me what I thought about PicoScope. So specifically Pico 6. One of the hotel rooms they had kind of, or I shouldn't say one of the hotel rooms, one of the hotels had a hospitality room. So Linder Tech kind of had a hospitality room set up. And in there, I and a few friends of mine and I and Craig with a projector uh, listened to me go on a, quite a rant about how much I hated Pico 6 and all the reasons I thought it was broken. Fast forward another year or so. And this is, oh man, Cicera 2007-ish, they offer me a job. And so I accept it. And now I'm moving uh, my family and I, so wife and three kids, to southwest Kansas, Garden City, Kansas. It's really like the big town over there. They're, they're or big city. There's not much else within about... I don't know, three hours. Denver's about three hours away. I guess you can go Tulsa. It's a ways away. Anyways, we moved there and it's, it's a different, it's different, right? But I, I wor- worked there. I enjoyed my, enjoyed working there. And a couple years in, yeah, I'm kind of done having kids in my mind. Uh, my kids are all the, the youngest at the time was you know, six. But my wife at the time wanted more, uh, wanted one more. And it was quite, you know, quite the to do about it. Back and forth debate, if you will, or not really an argument. It, it did erupt into an argument, but that's really beside the point. Uh, we agree that, you know, whatever, let fate decide. The expo everyone has been waiting for is back. The 2022 Napa Expo is coming to the Venetian Convention and Expo Center in Las Vegas, Nevada from July 18th through the 21st. It promises to be the biggest and best Napa Expo yet. Gear up for four days of business building excitement from general sessions and seminars to an enormous trade show that promises more suppliers, more space, and more products than ever before. It's all intended to help keep your business on the road to success. Industry experts will lead dozens of seminars throughout the day and general sessions will feature speakers from a variety of backgrounds who encourage you to strive for excellence and inspire you to keep your eye on the end game. As for the trade show, with 200 Napa suppliers and 555,000 square feet of exhibition space, 
You will use every minute of the doubled trade show hours to see everything there is to see. Visit with Napa suppliers about new products and equipment, as well as the latest diagnostic and repair solutions. There will be areas dedicated to brakes, tools and equipment, heavy duty, and the Napa store and Napa Auto Care, making it easier for you to locate suppliers on the show floor. The Napa Auto Care booth will showcase the cornerstones of the Napa Auto Care program and its elements, including branding and marketing, employee solutions, business management and development, process improvements, and gold certification. In addition to business, there will be plenty of fun at the 2022 Napa Expo. The entertainment lineup includes country superstar Keith Urban, American rock band The Goo Goo Dolls, and the always entertaining Spasmatics, delivering the best songs and cool dance steps of the 80s. In addition to all the learning and networking opportunities, there will be an amazing lineup of prizes with a variety of vehicles from ATVs and motorcycles to cars and trucks. For auto care center owners, 2022 Napa Expo is a can't-miss event. If you are not a Napa Expo package holder and are interested in attending, contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store. See you at the 2022 Napa Expo. So we end up, she's gets pregnant, you know, kind of start, she starts showing and then you start telling people about it and doctor's visits are going well. And around six months in, she goes in for a checkup and an ultrasound and the, uh, you know, doctor and I guess radiologist uh, are a little concerned. They they can't they can't find the stomach and they can't find the kidneys, but they're very quick and almost nonchalant in that the equipment isn't that great that they're using. That that the ultrasound isn't that trustworthy. So really, there's no urgency, if you will. That that from their side, they don't really push any urgency on us. So they recommend make an appointment in Wichita, Wichita, uh, the medical system, which I'm sure is part of the program or group uh, of medical centers, had like the Cadillac of ultrasounds. That would be the one to go to. So the timing is getting to be where it's starting to to get close to when we're going to go take vacation, if you will, to Minnesota for Christmas. And, you know, no lie, I got treated very well by Craig and Craig Technologies. They uh, gave me a lot, a lot of vacation time. So I had three weeks, six weeks total, really with the idea of three weeks to go home. I I don't think they liked it when I would call Minnesota home. And I understand why I, I get it. Just even the psychology of it was bad on my part. But to go to Minnesota for three weeks in the summer and three weeks in the winter around Christmas time. So we schedule this to coincide with that trip. We'll shoot across Kansas pretty much all the way and then go to that appointment and find out what's happening and then shoot up to uh, Red Wing, Minnesota. And we head over, you know, the appointment and they look and right away... The, uh, the ultrasound technician, the radiologist, I think, within seconds of looking, it's like, well, there's a stomach. There's just a sigh of relief, I guess, if you will, because, you know, it's a long, fairly long drive, five, five and a half hour drive of just kind of building up some anxiety. 
and uh, boom. Oh, there's the stomach. And, and literally almost in that tone, there's the stomach. Okay, cool. Like a little bit of a sigh of relief. But then she really doesn't say anything for the rest of the appointment. Or, or I don't want to say the appointment, but her portion of the appointment. And uh, okay. She kind of no sells it uh, where she doesn't really have a look good or bad of what's going on. You know, sit in the office and wait for the doctor to walk in. And then, you know, uh, when the doctor walked in and she's young, very young doctor, she walks in and now, you know, that this is not good news. And she doesn't know, you know, she hasn't had practice on building up that uh, disconnect or um, callous, maybe. And I don't want to say callous in that she would come off callous and maybe she would. And, you know, I I guess I just, I feel bad for doctors that have to come in and give bad news because there's no way they could possibly emotionally handle every time empathizing with you. It, It would just destroy you. Uh, destroy them, I guess. Um, anyways, you could tell. And I tried to let her keep it as short as possible. Because now we know the game. That this is not ending well. That we have a decision to make. Uh, do we terminate early? Or, you know, carry it to the, the birth, if you will. Uh, carry it to term. And the very real risk... I guess, if you will, call it a risk of a stillbirth or it won't be alive very long. And I I just feel like this is not something you make. This is not a snap decision. My wife at the time is healthy. Maybe not mentally, but at least physically. I know, you know, you're going to spend the holidays with really bad news in the back of your head and it's supposed to be jolly, but it just felt like we're going to be surrounded by family. That was important, I thought. She agreed. Okay, I'm not trying to make like our marriage was always, you know, us button heads. Okay, certainly not sunshine and rainbows all the time. I don't know anyone's that is, but regardless, we're, we're going to make a decision after the first of the year. We'll We'll go up there, we'll spend Christmas, think about it. Maybe not tell the kids and let them enjoy Christmas and then get back to Kansas, get back uh, home, if you will, and then make the hard decision. I got to level with you. My my gut feeling was it was going to be taken to term. That's what the choice would be. That I was kind of, I was going to really hand it off to her. I don't want to sound like I was unemotional about it, but the reality was, is to me, the end end was the same, regardless. I'm not sure which one would be worse. Uh, and uh, so I was really going to not pressure her with the decision, but it was really going to be in her wheelhouse. And it was a very long uh, and quiet, probably about, should have been about six hour drive. And I did it in four something. In retrospect, really stupid too, because I see roads and I'm flying. And I called, really, I called one person. Um, I d- okay, 
Uh, that's a lie. I called a couple of people. I called my parents uh, just to let them know. I didn't chat them up about it. Uh, just to let them know that this is this is the weight of things that will be showing up at your house. And then the other person I called was uh, my really best friend at the time, uh, Harvey Chan. And you know, I gotta I gotta tell you, it was probably for everyone else in the vehicle, uh, probably hated it. It was very analytical. And maybe that was my process. I don't know, but it was very, I just, I felt like very, we were down to earth. There was, these were the sequences of events. These were the choices. And this is, this is what you got to work with. But I needed it. Uh, I really, I needed it. I, I needed him to banter with me about it. And um, probably one of the very, very, very few conversations we have ever had ever where there was no laughing. That is probably one thing with Harvey. We laughed a lot, usually at each other's expense, but we laughed a lot. That's probably what I miss the most. So Harvey's gone now and maybe subject for a different episode. We get home and it's somber. I mean, what else is it going to (laughs) be? It is what it is. Um, So we're, we're home. Uh, it's before Christmas. Uh, my youngest son, uh, his birthday uh, is on the 22nd. So we celebrated that. And then you have Christmas, of course, the 24th and the 25th. Uh, and then the evening of the 27th, my wife at the time comes up to me and she's got pains and she thinks they're contractions. And I go, you know, are you sure? And I don't think it came off like a jerk. I wasn't trying to be a jerk. You know, because I've I've been through this a couple times. Three times to be exact. Know the game. She's like, I'm I'm pretty sure. How far apart are they? They were quite, they're like 15, 20 minutes apart. So I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, Braxton Hicks. Maybe just go relax a while. And I don't, I, you know, it probably wasn't 30 minutes later. She's back in tears, in pain. They're now a minute apart. It's like, oh, we got to go. Uh, so kind of flying, just her and I flying to the uh, ER. I call ahead. In retrospect, stupidly, uh, I don't give them a lot of details. I'm just telling them that. We're coming in hot. She's uh, contractions minute apart. And I, I gave them no other details. So this is a completely different network, hospital network, than what we were visiting in Kansas completely. And the ER has a drive-in, basically a garage door that opens. And I mean, they were waiting. They were waiting. It's It was, I guess, in a way, were impressive. Um they're waiting into a wheelchair, into a room. There's not a doctor on staff, but there's a nurse who's uh, got a lot of leadership qualities. I wouldn't say, I don't want to imply she was bossy or anything, but you know, you could tell she's in charge. And uh, she checks this uh, cervix and it's you know, whatever, 10 centimeters, and she feels a head. 
And I, I kind of cock my head a little to the side and I'm like, the head, it, it turned and her eyes got really big. And then she reaches in again and she's like, oh, I feel a butt. And now there's a lot of action. The, I mean, a lot. Nurses. Okay. The, the main nurse that was checking kind of hollers out, I have a butt. And now the room fills up really fast with a lot of nurses. And the beds break down into, um, you know, carts, if you will, or they can roll them down to, uh, you know, we're on our way to the OR. We're on our way to the operating room. And it's moving fast. They they break that down. They get her into a gown. They get me into, you know, the scrubs, if you will. And they're instructing me a little bit, coaching me up as to what is going to happen what are the what is the series of events the doctor is on the way the the OR is being prepped the anesthesiologist is there uh, I mean things are moving fast they're, they're moving really really fast and into the elevator we go and down in the basement is where they had the ORs and into the OR we go the doctor is just walking in the anesthesiologist uh, is really cool. He says hi and kind of walks me through what's going to go on. They're going to give her an epidural. I think they kind of asked me if I could, would get queasy and I laughed at them, literally. Here was this chair just in case and I kicked the chair away. I'm like, Are you, you got to be kidding me, really? However, it turns out a lot of people do drop. <laughs> not to give anything away. I'm going to give it away. Anyways, I did not drop. So there was no, you know, usually they throw up a barrier and everything. No, there's no barrier <laughs> where the the doctor was. I could see everything. And once that epidural was in, the uh, doctor asked her if she could feel anything. And I don't think he even cared what the answer was. He had already had her. He had already made the uh, primary incision belly button to down the front. Not quite to the crotch, but down the pelvis away, ways. And um, a side note, I learned that you kind of think the surgeon doctor is in charge of everything. At least in this OR, the uh, the anesthesiologist is the one running the show. Uh, I think the doctor was kind of responsible for the area he was working on. And he had two nurses. And that was his concern. The anesthesiologist had everything else, a lot of people. And they kept asking me if I was okay, uh, you know, if I was getting lightheaded or anything. It was to the point of annoyance and now downright offending me. Like, come on, really? Leave me alone. And makes the incision, makes another incision, obviously, to get into the sack, if you will. He hollers, you know, no fluid. So the fluid, the amniotic fluid, it's really made up of a lot of urine from the baby. The baby, our, you know, our baby did not have kidneys. Therefore, they're not, we're not producing urine. Therefore, there was no fluid. However, when he pulled it out, uh, it started crying and it was kind of like, holy crap, like really? It's crying. It's like almost, again, a little bit of relief. There are now two more doctors 
neonatals, I guess, is that what they would be? Um, but they were there for the baby. So you almost have these stations in the OR and doctor, uh, surgeon, if you will, obstetrician gets the baby out, cuts the umbilical cord, hands it over to the other team and they start working on him. Him. It's a boy immediately. And it's crying, but there's no urethra and they're trying to get a tube in. It's not going to happen. And the, Surgeon, obstetrician is kind of putting uh, my wife at the time back together. She's, you know, not happy, but again, there's, there's some relief, like is crying. But I guess I know the score. No kidneys. No, I heard no urethra. The baby, we kind of got a glimpse of him. He's uh, had a um, cleft palate, cleft upper lip and it's not to gross you all would or again to make this even sadder it's what it was and they're they're going to try to insert another tube again and they're failing and i hear uh somebody say mayo 2 is in the air okay in our world uh, you know in this area around mayo clinic there's two helicopters, Mayo 1, Mayo 2. Mayo 1's the quote-unquote slow helicopter, at least at the time was. Mayo 2 was the faster one. And Mayo 2's in the air. And in my mind, I'm looking at my wife at the time. She's not going to be going anywhere anytime soon. If the helicopter shows up, the, the baby's not staying in this hospital. It is now going to Rochester, which is going to be about 40 minutes away. I couldn't imagine a worse scenario. The mother in one hospital healing up from emergency surgery, or emergency C-section, and the baby down 40 minutes away where I don't really know what they're going to do. To me, this is a nightmarish scenario. So there's very, very, very few things I've ever done in my life that I'm legitimately proud of. Like, I'm not talking some campy, you know, BS patting myself on the back, but like just down deep inside, there's very few things, very, really very, very few things that I am actually proud of myself. Uh, this is one of them. Uh, I walked over to where they're working on him. And, you know, of course, I get the barricade and the uh, anesthesiologist kind of runs over. And I'm like, no, no, no. Uh, stop. Just stop. And they're kind of like, okay. And like, that. no, no. This is, this, this doesn't end with you guys saving him. You know, I think we kind of knew this is a very, very distinct possibility. And they're like, well, what do you want? What do you want to do? I'm like, can we get him stable enough to meet his mom? What are they going to say? Oh, yeah, no problem. Uh, really? Okay, we're going to do what we can. You know, he was very blue. He was not oxygenating well. So they got oxygen on him. They got my wife at the time sewed up. They got to hand her to him. He was alive. 
cried a little bit, but really he didn't cry much after uh, after the initial crying. Then came the trip up to the room and my my family's waiting and her my wife at the time's mother and aunt were there my mom and dad were there my uh, sister was there brother-in-law was there our um, all of our kids were there and into the room we go and you know we got a, we got a couple hours with them yeah he was alive for a couple hours and then, you know, they would check on them and stuff uh, a little bit. They weren't going to do anything, but, you know, kind of, I think they really needed to come up with the time of death, right? I mean, that's that's what they were doing. And I guess it was heavy in there. This is the word I'm going to use. Just heavy. I suppose it's sad, but... Uh, here we go. I don't know if this is uh, Matt disconnecting. I don't know if this is uh, Matt con- reconstructing a reality to make things easier to process and deal. I'm not implying I was smiling at all. I don't really hurt because of me. I hurt because I see other people hurting and there's a room for full of people hurting specifically wife at the time, kids who were, oh man, they were probably 12, 9, and 7 at the time, kind of trying to deal a little bit. Everybody gets a chance to hold him. He's, he gets handed around. Uh, he gets held. My sister and brother-in-law called their pastor at the time, and uh, he's kind of jetted in and uh, baptized them, which was very, very important to my parents, specifically my mom. That was very important to her. And I'm glad we did it. You know, just amazing to me uh, how that occurred. But back to what I was saying about, it's not like I was sitting there smiling, but I'm thinking to myself, looking around the room, looking at this situation, thinking about this situation, thinking about what the plan kind of was. And you couldn't script this better. I mean, really, you couldn't write a script better than what happened. The ending sucks, right? That was going to suck no matter what. There was no happy ending with this. But what was going on, the, the decision of waiting to go to term or terminating early that was taken out of our hands his name was benjamin he decided he's coming out and or however we want to frame that okay the decision was definitely taken out of our hands and like i said you could script this better we're surrounded by family surrounded by people we know some of the nurses we knew I mean, could you imagine the same scenario 14 hours away in Southwest Kansas? Not that Craig and his family wouldn't have been there for us. They absolutely would. Absolutely would have. So many people would have. So many friends down there would have. But there's something about family, right? Our families would not have been able to make it there in time. 
So we're where we're at, surrounded by them. If this was a Hallmark movie, nobody would watch it. Nobody would believe it. For, for it to be a Hallmark movie, Benjamin would have had to been flown down to Rochester where they're trying to save him. You know, what? I don't know what saving would even be. What does that even look like? And then probably me somehow stealing my wife at the time from the hospital to drive her down there to be around him, putting her health at risk. That's the Hallmark version, I think. I don't know. Maybe there's a better version. What happened? It blows my freaking mind. It blows my mind to think about that sequence of events working out the way it did, the timing of it all, and being able to be surrounded by family, and then having the employer I had who just kind of gave me the time I needed to, you know, wait for her wait for the uh, wife at the time to get healed up to travel back down for, you know, the 14 hour drive home to Southwest Kansas and that kind of time to wait that out, to kind of work remotely, you know, to kind of have the uh, funeral, if you will, up there. We had one obviously in Minnesota. We had another one in Kansas and I guess part of this is the other perspective. Um, and it's not, it's not picking on her. You know, I know I do this divorce episode and it's pretty, you know, it's, it's heavy in its own right. Uh, casting her in a not so bright light. But in this case, this isn't meant to be critical or condescending in any way. But for her, it wasn't a positive experience at all. It was all bad. And I, I, you know, I guess it would be easy to just say, like, I get it. I'm not sure I get it. And maybe that's just me being a complete freaking jerk. I understand the hurt. I understand that. But stop and think about the this gift. This is what this was. This is a gift that this was not going to end with a second living son. This That's not what was going to happen. But this bad thing, this painful thing happened surrounded by those that we were closest to, our loved ones. I, I couldn't get there. I, I, I couldn't sympathize with her uh, on that front. I tried explaining my position on it and not to be, you know, was certainly not skipping down the hallways of the hospital. But for one, the, the diagnosis is trisonomy 13, which means he's got uh, extra chromosomes or copies of chromosomes, specifically uh, chro- chromosome 13 in each cell. If it would have been just slightly different, uh, a different chromosome, uh, he would have had Down syndrome. So I guess... Again, maybe this is disconnecting. I don't know. Um, I, I didn't do it on purpose. But to me, this is also, we hit a bad lottery. This is statistical. There's nothing she did or I did that caused it. It was really bad luck. There, there's going to be, you know, for the most part, statistically, X amount of babies born with this. The vast, vast, vast majority of them do not live and if they do quality of life you could 
could be in question. And I don't, you know, I'm also worried that somebody listening to this has a child with this and is really ready to put me in my place. And maybe I deserve that. But the vast majority, it's, it's not that much good. In a way, I had kind of counted this, chalked this up, if you will, to statistics. I uh, got a bad break. But with that bad break, we got a couple of really, really, really good breaks. And uh, another thing, I guess, to bring up a little bit, it was hard for me to get too upset because I know people that had it worse. For one, uh, my parents. This is before I was born, uh, but they lost what would be my older brother to a farm accident. So in my mind, after my first child, after a year, trying to process what that would be like to just try to sympathize or empathize on the most basic of levels, how horrible that would be and not wanting to do it to level with you, that was beyond tragic to me. And then you have a friend of mine uh, in school. We were second grade. He lost a sister, a younger sister. To me, that was so much worse that I had time to prepare. Like I kind of knew the score that this could go bad, you know, going into that first ultrasound in Wichita, you know, thinking that was going to be bad news. And kind of starting the preparation process, starting the scenarios in my head. If this, then that. If this, then that. Over and over and over and all the different possibilities that I could think of, at least. I had time to prepare. And then knowing. I had days to prepare. And they didn't. So for me, it was just really hard to get too too upset, too woe is me, too depressed. And again, like, I don't want to make it, I don't want to insinuate in any way that I was a-okay, but that that's the way I kind of looked at it. I uh, got a, a bad break, but man, oh man, the, the situation we were in, the environment we were in to go through that with so many around us, so many loved ones, that, yeah, there there was a lot of pain and sadness and loss in that room, but there was also a lot of love and caring and thoughtfulness. N- and not just my family and her family and the staff, the, the hospital staff, they'll never get enough credit. I don't know. I can't thank them enough. My mom was a uh, nurse before I was born. And back in her day when... You know, if the baby, something was really wrong or really not so much when something was wrong, but if it had passed away, they kind of took it away. And so she was so relieved and happy that even after he had passed away, there was no pressure to send him away. Uh, She kept him for a while. We kept him for a while and she held him. And I think that was actually very important to have that. I don't know if it quite works out like a Band-Aid getting ripped off, you know? I, I don't think that's quite the the way that works. And so uh, it was a lot easier to, um, you know, call up the uh, funeral home to come get them. Just so, so professional, so 
empathetic, if you will, to the point I, I got a card and wrote a letter to all the nursing staff. And then I was told some of the best things you can do for them is to buy chocolates. So I tried to buy as many chocolates as I could afford and stack the place because I, I can't say enough how great everybody was. I mean, if I had really one con- criticism, it was when the obstetrician came in and told us that, you know, what he had was not life compatible. And it was kind of like, yeah, you know, shit, Sherlock. But then again, there you go. Like, wow, he can't be in there breaking down telling you this either. He can't, he's got a disconnect too, or he'd go mad. I, what else is he going to say? I would have preferred to have been, you know, this is what he had. Maybe some statistics. I'm sorry. It was nothing you did, especially for the mother, I guess, that really hammer at home. It's nothing you did. You didn't do anything wrong. These wheels were set in motion six months ago or so. And as best you can kind of get that across. Uh, And then she had to heal physically and we all kind of healed up as best you can mentally, but it's so much easier and familiar surroundings with family around and just people's just so genuinely care. It's, you know, the funeral by itself sucked, but the uh, visitation, just the people coming out because they care, that means so much. I guess I wish I had a way of putting some big, you know, bow on this and be able to, I don't know, contextualize it or wrap it up in some wrapping of how automotive bubble, but I I got nothing. I I think, or really, I feel like the big thing is, is perspective. Perspective means so much. I mean, I hope I didn't come off like super or overly optimistic. I'm hoping I I was being very real and very down to earth. That's That's what I'm shooting for. Not right now, but back then that, to recognize that even in this painful situation, this depressing, if you will, situation, that there's a, at least one silver lining, but probably a series of them. We, I think we were wrapped up in some silver linings, to be, to be quite honest. And that maybe just whatever you're going through, how big or how small, and who knows anyone to say what that really is, but try to just pump the brakes a little bit and stop and look around and think about everything and try to observe everything. Try to be aware and pick out, just try to pick out some positives. Like this isn't all bad, even if it's ultimately bad that there's some good things going on. There's good people around. You kind of find out where you rate if you will, in people's worlds. And some of it is obligation. Don't get me wrong. You know, something tragic happens to somebody, people kind of on obligation. I'm not saying they're dragging their feet like, oh, you got to go to this. But it's just kind of what you do. It's a formality. There's also a lot of people that they're there because they want to be and need to be like, not because of some rules written or unwritten 
are socially accepted that they legitimately want to be there. And you, you find out just how important people are to you and how important you are to them. At least in my case, I just hope that regardless of what it is, you just not, not to oversimplify it either. Like when I say just, it's not like, oh, just do this. I'm trying to not say just, to be quite honest. If you can look around, uh, and maybe that's with your eyes and maybe it's really with your mind, close your eyes and think about things. There will be another day. Like I said at the beginning, uh, something Chris Rock said that resonated me, he was talking about his father's passing. Um, I think it applies to a lot that there's a lot of things you don't get over. It's not like you get over it. And that's a kind of, and, and maybe it's just a phrase we use, but the reality is, is you don't get over a lot of things. I think there's a lot of stuff I've never gotten over. But I do feel like I've learned to live with it. And again, that doesn't mean like learn to live with it. It just means it is part of my history. It is part of my experiences and environment that now maybe I can try to choose the best way of how it gets written into my programming. And I feel like I chose to try to use my current programming and this experience to write or modify my programming to be aware and recognize good things, even in dire or dark situations. Again, I really apologize for not being able to tie some pretty bow on this. And I think I'm just going to kind of end it right here. Uh, thank you again for listening. I really, really do appreciate it. I hope this really does uh, help you or help someone. And if you have any ideas for future episodes or if you have stuff uh, you just want to talk about, uh, ideas or just uh, need somebody to listen, don't hesitate to uh, reach out to me through Messenger, the email address, mattfonzlepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Napa. Thank you to the Aftermarket Radio Network. And I look forward to talking to you all later. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.